You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello, and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 89 for Monday, the 13th of November, 2017. My guest on today's podcast is Cueve McDonnell, an award-winning stand-up comedian, author, and writer of Televisual Treats. His debut novel is A Man With One Of Those Faces, which he followed up with The Day That Never Comes and Angels In The Moonlight. When not writing books, Cueve is in great demand as a writer for TV. He's worked on the hit BBC Two show, the Sarah Millican television programme, and written for comics on Mock the Week and Have I Got News For You. He's also worked as a children's TV writer and was BAFTA nominated for the CBBC animated series Pet Squad, which he created. Cueve was a winner in the BBC's Northern Laughs sitcom writing competition, where he was lucky enough to be mentored by Craig Cash and Phil Mealy of Royal Family fame. When I interviewed Cueve, I started by asking him if he's ever had a regular day job. I went full-time at comedy in about 2000, and it's terrible how I remember this, but I honestly God remember it from 9-11. That's not a good, but it's a weird little thing, but basically the year after that, so yes, 2002, um, I went full time. Before that, I was in I had IT, worked in IT in Ireland for a while. Then um, I moved over to UK for six months with my job, basically because I wanted to try stand up and I wanted to do it where nobody knew me. <laughs> um, so I moved to London uh, for six months, did that, did some stand up. I did some writing courses as well. Um, then I came back. I worked in London for about two, two and a half years. And then I um, resigned and went full time from there. But before that, yeah, I was. I was one of the worst IT employees you'll ever see, but I was, uh, so r- remarkably, I managed to keep getting away with it. I, I got very far just by being the bloke who was quite friendly in the IT department. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> a man who could talk to human beings is, is quite an advantage, isn't it? Genuinely, I could tell you some stories, but um, I mean, with all due respect, I've got a lot of friends who work in IT, but yes, I, I managed to get by by having slightly better interpersonal skills, <laughs> shall we say, than many of my colleagues might have done. <laughs> Now, I'm fascinated by comedy uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, number one is because I feel that uh, comedians make great actors and great writers. Um, ben Elton's a, a, you know, a great example of that, but many comedians have gone into writing as well. And um, also because it really requires you to face your fear in the most terrifying situation on earth. So let me first ask you, why did you want to become a comedian? What, what lit the spark there? Um, it's a weird thing. Only in hindsight, you kind of realize these things like it's kind of it's almost bizarre to say this now. But um, there was a time when I was a teenager growing up um, and I'm 42 now. So on this, we're talking about sort of early 90s, really, um, where stand up. There was one stand up show on TV um, and that actually eventually got canceled. The BBC had it on late at night on a Saturday. Tommy Tiernan presented it and then Ardle Hanna presented it and stuff. And that was the only stand up that was on television. Uh, at the time, you you might see the occasional Bill Hicks or Billy Connolly or something, but very rarely outside of that. And in hindsight, the reason I bring that up is I videotaped that. And I didn't think I was going to go into comedy at the time, but I did, in hindsight, realize that I did watch it and rewatch it and rewatch it and rewatch it. So clearly it was always there. I was always um, very interested in it. I just maybe didn't admit it to myself. Um, and I was too shy and embarrassed to do it, I guess, was a large part of it. Um, but yeah, it was always there. And then I went to London, um, where nobody knew me and I was able to do it. And the first gig went great. I think in hindsight, largely because some American students found the Irishman speaking incredibly fast, entertaining as opposed to anything he actually said. Um, and then when the next five went disastrously badly, um, and then on the one after that, I met my closest friend in comedy, a gentleman called Gary Delaney, who's quite a well-known comic in Britain now. Um, so yeah, that's how I kind of got into it. And it's probably at least part of the fault of why I'm still in it is Gary's fault, because I think at any point I would have given up myself and Gary ended up living together and stuff for years. And he was incredibly hardworking um, and he was a, quite an example to live, to, to live with, really. He sort of couldn't give up if you were living with Gary Delaney. It just didn't make any sense. So you had to keep going. <laughs> so that very first um, example of stand up, that very first gig that you do, is, is it scripted? Do you busk it? How, how do you prepare for something like that? Oh, yeah, you script it, and then you you realise fairly quickly that none of these jokes work. Um, I mean, 
there are a couple of incidents of people who come in to stand up and actually do naturally get it right very, very quickly. They are incredibly rare. I mean, really, the only two I can think of is uh, Sarah Millican, who's a good friend of mine. She did writing and stuff beforehand. She did plays and stuff like that. So in hindsight, she was almost kind of queued up, ready to go. And then she just went like a rocket through the circuit. I mean, from her first gig, she was good. She just was. She had it. Um, Jack Whitehall as well, the other end of the extreme. Um, Jack Whitehall, I, I saw him very early on. Um, he's quite a young guy, for anyone who doesn't know him. He's a very young sort of, um, as he says himself, very posh. He went to the poshest, literally the poshest, poshest school in, in, in England, as far as I understand it. But again, had phenomenal performance skills. But again, his father is a famous agent who like had big clients. He would have Oscar-winning actors sleeping on his sofa. Like he was, he lived in a very different world. So I guess performing to him was no big thing. Um, so yeah, those two people are the only two I've ever seen who've been very natural early on. Everyone else goes on and just does it horribly. You basically have to be deluded for a couple of years. You have to be deluded in your own head and think it's going better than it is. Because if you realised how it was actually going, you'd stop. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how you get around it. And then you sort of the camaraderie of meeting people like myself and Gary started off together. I think that keeps you going, but you have to be quite deluded, frankly. But when you get feedback, I mean, we all as authors moan about our one-star reviews, but you, your reviewer, sat in a chair with a pint of beer in front of him or her uh, at the time. So it's very, very direct feedback. Uh, you must need a thick skin to deal with that. Ah, I guess you do. You do develop it in some way, but at the same time, um, People always think with stand-ups, the classic thing is that being heckled is the worst thing in the world. It really isn't. You have a microphone, you're presumably sober, they haven't got a microphone and are almost certainly drunk. If you can't outwit them, then you probably shouldn't be there in the first place. Um, but the thing you really hate as a stand-up is being ignored. Um, that's, that's horrible if they just start talking over you. That's, that's the grimmest thing in the world. Um, so yeah, you get used to the, there is an immediate thing to it. Um, but you, you kind of get used to it. It's a weird thing, like you're, you're, you build up the thick skin, as you said, and um, it just becomes something you know. So you don't, when you've been in the bad situation a few times, you know how to work it around to your advantage when maybe others wouldn't. And you kind of pick up that experience as you go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is, you know, it can be very brutal. We've all had that dark, you know, that long, dark night of the soul where you're wondering what on earth you're doing with yourself. Um but there's actually a brilliant, there's actually there's a good bit of advice for writers as well. There's a thing we have on the circuit. It's actually called Millican's Rule, which is after Sarah Millican. And um, she came up with this idea that um, no matter how good or how bad a gig went, you have until 11 o'clock the next morning to talk about it. And then it's gone. So basically, what, if, you're, if you had a horrible one or a brilliant one, whatever it is, 11 o'clock the next morning, it's finished now. You've got another, the next gig is the most important thing. And I think that's a brilliant, that's a great thing. Um, as a stand-up, certainly, and it also applies to writing, that you can't let one review get to you. You have to. You can't let one gig get to you. You know. I mean, I've done God, I don't know how many, a couple of thousand gigs probably now, and you just have to, you know, brush it off, pick yourself up, and off you go again, and you know, try and block it out of your mind. I guess. Is it easy to make a living as a comic at first? Because I, I'm guessing those initial gigs are at, at pubs and, and smaller clubs, and there's a lot of travelling involved too, isn't there? So it must be quite hard as a to, to bootstrap that. Oh yeah, I mean it is like myself and Gary worked in the city of London um, together. I can remember like we would get out of work slightly early, get into the car, drive to Manchester for money that wouldn't cover the petrol, uh, literally five hours in a car do the gig, turn around, come back, get to bed at three o'clock in the morning, get up, get up eight o'clock the next morning, get back into work and then fall asleep at your desk. Um, so yeah, it is, you, you do, they call it open spots and it is quite brutal and it's getting harder, frankly, because the comedy circuit in England has actually contracted quite a bit in the last maybe six years now. Um, so it is, you do have to, I mean, I was lucky how I got to go full time is um, I'd always written scripts and things as well. And uh, my agent at the time had come to me and said, do you want to write kids TV? Uh, and I went, no, 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 that doesn't sound like something I'd like to do at all. And then, bless her, she sent my script in anyway. And um, I got offered an interview and then a job with a company I ended up doing an awful lot of work with. But basically, when I got like two or three, I think I, I wrote one script for this kids TV thing called The Crust, which was a sitcom. Um, they liked it. They offered me two more. And that was the point that I realized that between that and stand up, I could afford to go full time. Because it is, I mean, you know, you, you see a lot of writers now trying to go full time and give up the day job and all that sort of stuff. And similarly with stand up, it is, you know, it is very hard to, to make the leap. And unfortunately, in the last 
six or seven years, it's got harder. But, you know, it's just one of those things you have to go through, really. People assume that if you are anywhere near TV, uh, you're earning a fortune. Um, you know, I, I worked in, in TV and radio for years, and just, people are on the same pay scales as you that you see on your on the BBC News every night. They're just on regular salaries. So, so, so when you landed TV work, you know, was what was it the dream, or did it just allow you to to live a reasonable living? I mean, oh, kids. I mean, kids TV again doesn't pay as well as it used to actually, uh, because it changed in in just in Britain to give someone a, a thing that used to be. The terrestrial channels, which are BBC One and BBC Two, and all the kids' TV in Britain was on BBC Two. Then they moved it all to what they call the digital channel, which is CBBC and CBBS or what have you. Um, and they said, oh, well, they're digital channels. They're not the same as terrestrial channels. Uh, despite the fact now every country, every house in the country has access to those channels through a preview, preview digital package that the whole country has. So it used to pay um, pretty well. I mean, I can't remember the exact figures, but it was certainly good. Like three scripts was a, was a good year. And I guess I was quite lucky that I just learned how to write kids' TV scripts. Just scripts in general, I, I write fast. Like, I was able to, for a 24-minute episode of children's television, the only time the producers realized this, because I wrote a lot for the same company. I worked on the same shows. I created one. And I worked a lot with this company, which I was blessed, because they're the best company in Britain. And um, When I started working with other companies, it was a bit of a problem, because you get used to a certain standard. But... Yeah, so I work with, with these people, and they realized when they, they needed me to fix a script, and they said, look, if you, for someone else, and they said, look, how long would it take you if you really put everything into it? And I said, well, to be honest, I've written most of the scripts I've given you in the last few weeks in a day. I just don't hand them in straight away because I feel like you're worried that I wasn't doing it properly. <laughs> and they were like, no, look, we know you can do it. Just send. So I just I wrote in a day, and after that, that was the way they found out that actually I could. I mean, it was a long day, but I could sit down and really work it. Again, because you did beat by beats, you know, the scene by scenes and all this plotting versus uh, pantsing and stuff. I was completely a pantser, pantser, and they taught me how to plot out a TV script beat by beat. And once I had that, I could knock out a script um, fairly quickly because the comedy bit isn't really that hard. It's the actual figuring out, moving the pieces around on the board. That's the tricky bit. I think the actually, if you're good at, well, if comedy's natural to you, then it comes reasonably easy. I don't sit there for hours trying to come up with a joke when I'm writing a script or something like that. I'm just trying to figure out where things are. And the jokes kind of come while I'm getting going between A and B, I guess. I'm fascinated in the, in the anatomy of a joke. Uh, comedians just, just fascinate me because, uh, effectively, if you remove the laughs, they're just telling really great stories and really well-structured stories. So you've obviously had a good run at being an author with this. So, you know, is there a, a formula, an anatomy of a good joke, or is it just something that makes you laugh? Well, there's, I mean, there are some very strict rules. Again, um, Gary, who I mentioned earlier, is what they call a one-liner comic, although, as he will explain, it's actually almost always two lines. Um, but he will go through the anatomy of a joke to a ridiculous degree. I mean, he will sit there wording and rewording something to get extra... You can't repeat the same word and all that sort of thing he's very particular whereas i'm much more story based um kind of like i mean i wouldn't compare myself to him but billy Connolly, just give you an idea is obviously completely stories um and those kind of come a lot easier in the sense that if that's what you do like gary will work hard to you know chip away chip away and if he comes out with 30 seconds of material he'll be delighted whereas i'll work on something to get three or four minutes out of it probably get the same amount of laughs but it look you know in my style it's more conversational his is very much you know, a short, sharp thing. So there are lots of little things like K sounds and all that are funnier, um, not repeating words. But there's a lot of these things that actually, in live stand-up, a lot of those rules don't apply to, say, a novel in the same way, or even a TV script, really. Um, it's, a, it's a different medium for comedy, if you like. So there must be a lot of um, foreshadowing involved there when you're writing a, a comedy script, i.e. setting up a joke either, or either physically or situationally. Yeah, I mean, you do. I think there is. I think there's probably quite a lot of that, and a lot in most TV things in particular. Um, I mean, I can destroy any an episode of almost any any crime drama for my wife, and regularly do. Where I literally, well, Elementary is our favourite show, but I will literally sit there in the first section and go, Tim, and then if someone turns up, I go, it's not him. He's the red herring, and then it's because, and it's the same with a joke that you have to. There's always a misunderstanding. A friend of mine has written a book recently. I won't say who it is, but um, they had a bit of a problem where he wrote. Um, he wrote the book with, you know, there's, there's certain ambiguities you need in a setup sentence for you can change expectations in the, in the punchline, if you like. And he had a, it was a big publishing house. They had a line editor who went through it 
and remove the ambiguity. <laughs> and read the entire book and went, yeah, they've, he's killed about 40 to 50 jokes here. Um, and they have to go through everything again and say, you know, this person doesn't doesn't know comedy. They don't get to change the structure of the sentence. And they had to, they had to come up with a whole different set of rules because it was yeah, destroyed jokes just by what a normal in a normal situation. A line editor can do that. It makes sense. If you do it with comedy, you can iron out the crease that makes it funny. Put it that way. So when you step out onto stage to uh, some stand-up then, how much of it is scripted and how much of it is it busked off, uh, you know, people shouting things out, the situation, the town or city that you're in? What, what's the sort of, um, is there a sort of rough kind of ratio you can give? Oh, I, I couldn't give you an exact, it varies wildly depending on what role, because again, someone like Gary is frankly 98% scripted um, because of his style. Uh, whereas I, it depends what I'm doing, I MC gigs quite a lot, so I'm chatting to the crowd so sometimes none of that could be scripted. Sometimes I'll do a mixture of chat to them and then um, do some material, depending on how chatty or how good they are and to talk to. And then when I'm doing a set, generally I'd say my set, 80, 85%, 90% of it is probably pretty much the same. I do like, I enjoy, if I can, if I've seen some of a place I am, like I like, I've done Dubai and stuff like that. And that's great fun because it's a different place, an entirely different experience to what I'm used to. So we did a week there. By the end of the week there, I was doing half my set just on being in Dubai because you go around and there's so many different experiences. Whereas if I turn up to Nuneaton, I get out of the car, I go into the venue, I do the gig, I come back. I've not spent a great deal of time in Nuneaton. Lovely though, I'm sure it is. So I don't know how to tell you, you know, different jokes about Nuneaton. But you always try and, I do try and pay attention to the room and pay attention to the audience um, to, to work off them because there's a great spontaneity and frankly that's the most fun stuff for you because you know you're preparing material you enjoy doing on a certain level but if you can bounce off the audience or bounce off the room it's um it's really the, the purest comedy there is in some ways in the sense that you're just right in the moment so yeah i know you've done some uh, writing too on some pretty high profile programs these are all things that are on the Teague television. So um, Sarah Millican's shows, I mean, I love Sarah's delivery. You know, everything about her, she's fab. And uh, Mock the Week, Have I Got News for You. These are pretty high-profile uh, comedy shows. How, what, what do you do with those? How do you get involved with those? Um, honestly, I kind of got involved with those um, because people I know um, were basically on them and they asked me to write for them. So it's kind of like I write for comedians on those shows as such. Like, well, Sarah's show, I was in the writing room because... Um, she just brought in when they do these things they have a, there's a certain group of uh, comedy writers in if you ever watch the there's a thing called program associates at the end of any British program those are the writers but they don't want to call them writers but if you look at it everything now is program associate if, unless it's a scripted sitcom and those names are almost always the same people again and again there's like 10 people in that group and when you do a TV show they're always trying to use those groups because that's the ones producers know and trust where Sarah came from a stand up background and said she basically said, right, we'll use three of them and we're going to use three people I know from the circus because they know me better and, and they can write to my style and all that sort of thing. So we had to kind of mix that way. So you got to, yeah, you get brought in basically by people knowing you from the stand-up circuit. And then I got offered other things because I did that. Um, like on Mock the Week, I generally write for a couple of comedians. Gary doesn't mind me saying it's him. He, he, he's been on Mock the Week now about 18 or 19 times, I think. Um, and the thing I'm particularly good at, uh, basically my job on Mock the Week, if you ever watch it, is they put up a picture um, on this show. For any non-British listeners, by the way, this is a topical stand-up show, but they have seven comics sitting around all making jokes. And if that sounds like far too many comics, then you've understood it correctly, because it is. Um, but I'm not complaining because I get employed by it. But yeah, they all sit around and like, they put up a picture and it's a caption of the week and it's something topical and you have to go up with gags. And for whatever reason, um, I am... Um, particularly good at that so to the point where he's been on he's got a couple of other writers in himself and he's one of the best writers in the country frankly and uh, i think 16 times in a row now since i've been working for him on it i've always been the guy who's when he does a caption gag that's always mine um because i'm good at that part um so you're kind of brought in just to bolster because they get the stuff the day before and there's a lot of pressure like a topical show like that they get the stuff the day before and then you know it's not all made up on the spot quite so, a lot of it is when you see something like that it does kind of ruin it for people when they find out what the role is. But the reality is, when you see those six comedians sitting around a table, uh, you're watching an arms race, and they all have a team of two or three other comedians behind them. And it's all about uh, who can get their jokes in first, who has the best writers, 
um, and who can find their little space in what is a very crowded room, if you like. Um, so, yeah, they're a lot of fun to do, but they're, you kind of get brought in by your friends and then you keep in there because they like what you do, I guess. So that's why I was um, watching, um, which one of it? Mock the Week, uh, the, uh, last night or the night before, I think it was. And I noticed that Steve Punt was in there as well. I'm thinking, oh, that's interesting if he's involved in that. But that's presumably he's setting up Hugh Dennis, is he? Yes, that would be that would be correct. The two of them work together on radio. And my understanding is he's technically on the, sca- the staff there, um, from what I understand. I say, but yeah, I would imagine he's, also, he's working for you pretty much there most of the time, I would think, yeah. And so um, you're revealing all the secrets behind these programmes, because have I got news for you? I assumed was um, off the cuff, but again, that's set up, is it? To a certain point, there is, they get some, I mean, it is, a lot of it's off the cuff. I've, I can't even say who I wrote for on that, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I did write for a couple of comedians on it now. And um, it's just basically giving them a bit of extra stuff, because if you're thinking about it, if you're going into that situation, it's, those records, by the way, you see a half hour on television, they are three hours long. They are... Like, I mean, Mock the Week in particular is is a slugfest. It's three hours. It's pretty exhausting for everybody involved. Um, and it's just a lot of time at writers. It's just like people like to feel like they have some stuff prepared so they can relax. And then a lot of time they'll go on and a lot of the stuff they'll do will be just them being funny on their own. But, you know, it's just nice to have had the little bit of extra preparation, I guess. Now you've done a lot of writing, but I, I do wonder whether you would like to be the front man. So your, your mate Gary's on uh mock the week quite a lot that's how i got to know gary really like his stuff which means i probably really like your stuff too so well, um, very different i wouldn't go making that or something. <laughs> but, uh, i mean presumably i mean do, do we not get comic envy do you, do you want to be up there too doing it no um i mean talk, at a certain point in my career i would have liked to have been on tv and all that sort of stuff but um it doesn't really suit me if i'm honest um, and as regards comic envy and stuff, uh, people have asked a few times because, like, I mean, I keep mentioning them, but Gary and Sarah are my two closest friends because Gary and myself, we just started off together and Sarah is his wife, as, as everybody now knows. Um, I've never honestly felt envious of them because they work incredibly hard, as do most. I can honestly, the, the biggest thing that people don't realize about stand up comedians is how hard they work, like all that effortless being funny um, stuff enormous amount of work has gone into it either to be that good to be able to improvise or to prepare jokes and work and work and work and work um so i've never i can honestly say never been envious of them simply because they deserve everything they've got they're absolutely how hard they work you would not believe i mean incredible they work harder than any people i've known in any other business um so yeah not, not in the least i'm delighted every time they do well frankly um and they have done extremely well which is great so you've already um, illustrated your writing credentials. It's no uh, big leap, I guess, from, from doing the writing that you're doing into books. But I am interested to know, uh, most people would say, look, you've got this fantastic career in comedy. You've got famous friends. You're involved with telly. It's really glamorous. So why would you want to move then towards books? Um, I mean, for a start, it's nowhere near as glamorous as you think. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm delighted to have a career where I can make a decent living doing stuff I love, which is great. Um, but I, I think I always had, I had an idea for a book because, you know, I knew how to write TV. I didn't know how to write novels and they are a quite different thing to do. Like, for example, in my novels, I'm like, I knew dialogue. One of the earliest pieces of feedback I got from, I did a master's in MMU, which I haven't actually bothered finishing, but I, I did do a master's <laughs> in creative writing because um, I wanted to learn. And I'm very much, if I don't know how to do something, I want to go about the proper way of learning it. So I went in, and one of the first things the lecturer said to me is, you don't need any help on dialogue, you know how to do dialogue, which I guess makes sense, because I had, I mean, like, I've done sitcom scripts. Um, I had, I think, eight or nine sitcom scripts I've had optioned over the years by um, Craig Cash and Phil Mealy, who did The Royal Family with Carolyn Hearn and a few other big companies. The point is, I've had lots of stuff that kind of was in the mix but never got on telly. Um, and I kind of got sick, frankly, of doing that, because the problem with a script is you write a script and in Britain in particular, it's changed a bit now with, with different providers, but it goes to the BBC person, the Channel 4 person, and the ITV person, possibly, though they don't do that much sitcom. Um, and if they like it, you're great. But if they don't, three people have read the script you've worked on for a year, and it's not going anywhere, um, and you never get to write a second episode. You've built those characters, you never get to do anything else with it. And um, I think particularly what really spurred me on was I had one of those that I really spent a long time on, uh, and the production company, frankly, maybe made the wrong decisions on a few different things. They weren't really experts in comedy, that particular company. 
Um, and I just went, I can't keep doing, I, I hate this, you know, nothing worse. Whereas, so I had an idea for a novel. Uh, I tried to write. It was quite a serious thriller. I realized fairly quickly I didn't know what I was doing. So uh, I did the masters in MMU and then my not my amazed more people don't do this. But my first logical thing was I should write lots of short stories because that's how you would learn how to write prose. Because lots of people seem to throw themselves into a novel. And if you can do that straight away, good luck to you. But I'll be honest, I, I didn't think that was something I could do straight away. And then I, I wrote a fair few short stories because I was, you know, I was in the position where I can spend quite a bit of time on it because I was making, you know, I can make a good living at the weekends doing stand up and the other things I do. Um, so during the week, I was sitting in the MMU library just trying to crank out short stories as much as I could. Um, and they were a brilliant education. And actually, my first book came out of a short story idea that um, just expanded beyond what I thought it was going to be. And I just kind of went for it um, and ended up writing the whole novel that way because I got some early feedback that people quite liked it. And so I sort of went for it. But, um, yeah, there's still there's a, lot of, a lot I had to learn. Even now, there's still a lot I have to learn about novels. I, I, I pride myself on always trying to do pay attention to craft whenever possible and I've got a very good editor and all that sort of stuff but yeah just constantly trying to get better because nobody comes in really know it's like stand up you think you know what you're doing but you find out fairly quickly you don't and then it's the people who work hard to try and get better that do have the careers is what I'd like to think anyway and you alluded to it a little bit earlier on in the interview it is part of wanting to write books um, a desire not to be shooting all over the country and doing <laughs> ridiculous tours Oh, well, no, the tours are great. I mean, I, I, I get to support, uh, you know, the sports I do on tours are brilliant. Um, I think, to be honest, yeah, certainly the travel is a big part of it. Uh, that, yeah, less travel, I, I could quite happily go with some less travel. It is the hardest part of being a stand-up. I think anyone at any level will tell you that. Um, and, and frankly, you know, if I were to spend less Saturday nights uh, talking to 300 drunk people, uh, I'd be happy enough with that as well because I think the thing with stand-up is audiences have kind of sounds this sounds really sort of back in my day old curmudgeon but audiences have actually genuinely changed not so much for theater gigs but if you go to like a club on a on a friday or saturday a comedy club um audience a few years ago if someone was on their phone you could embarrass them and they go oh, sorry sorry and put it away and now you genuinely get people coming in and they seem horrified that you tell them not to be on their phone despite the fact it's disrupting the show um so i guess live stand-up is just you know you get great audiences still for for theater shows but the clubs maybe aren't as much fun as they once were. So, yeah, I'd, I'd be quite happy to spend more time writing than doing the club shows. I'll still always be a stand-up. I love doing the, the tours of Gary and Sarah. They're incredible. You do amazing theatres. It's wonderful. Um, I mean, it's a bit of a spoil. You know, it's, it spoils you for other gigs, frankly. Um, but, yeah, I just really enjoy doing that. More The thing that really drove, drove me in is I like the fact when I'm writing a novel now that when I sit down, because we all have that, oh, this is taking a bit, you know, this isn't easy. You go, well, whatever happens, this, this is going to go out. Like, as long as I want this to be published, it will be. Nobody can stop this going out. Whereas if you had sitcom scripts that have been, you know, gathering dust in the BBC for a decade, um, that's very appealing when you're in charge of when it goes out. So I think that's probably a bigger factor is the control that you get when you write a novel and you can self-publish now. We'll dig into that a little bit more in a moment or two. I just want to ask you, before we move from the comedy into the books, um, that um, w with YouTube and with phones, as you've alluded to, and, and the fact that you're on telly all the time, that modern comedians burn up material at a rate of knots, uh, you know, compared to somebody who might have been on, you know, somebody like Mark Yarwood, who might have been on once a week, and if you, if you didn't see that, you missed it. Um, so how much of a challenge is that, that, that constantly need to find new material? I mean, that's, as I say, because I'm not doing stand-up on TV, so it's, it's easier enough for me. Um, although there's, there's obviously bits for piece for it on, on YouTube. But, I mean, that is why on, on shows like Mock the Week and all these things, you have to have a team of writers um, because you, you burn through so much material. I mean, especially like Sarah's show, for example, that was six episodes of a half hour each, and we did two of them a week for three weeks. So that's an incredible, you know, to generate that much stuff is enormous. You do need help, obviously, doing that. And when I say, by the way, when, I, when I've written for Sarah and Gary and stuff, the, the, the difference is when they're on tour, the stuff you see on stage, them, at least for the two of them, is entirely them. Nobody writes that except they do um, because that's their own stand-up. People use, like a lot of comics use writers for TV shows because they burn through so quickly. But when they do their own tours, that's very much them. And I would like to point that out to be clear with those two, especially. Um, and so they do. It, it does burn through material an awful lot, which is why um, you can see certain comics can tour every year and then other ones do a tour maybe once every three years because it depends how quickly you can write, 
is a large part of it. Yeah. And um, again, uh, you mentioned all the, the scripts that you've taken ages to write and then they, they end up in development hell and nothing comes of them. So it's it, it was always going to be indie for you when you self-published, when you went for publishing, I beg your pardon. Um, you never thought of going trad? Oh, no, I, I did. Uh, I think obviously, I think everybody does at some point. Um, I mean, to be honest, the, the single biggest thing I had, because mine are, um, I suppose you can call them comedic crime, although I don't really like the phrase, but they are funny books, but they are also crime thrillers, and they properly are crime thrillers. They just have uh, a different element in them. Um, and when I start, I wrote the, the, the first book, and then when I started sending it around to agents, as you do, as everyone does, um, despite the fact having a, you know, a, a CV, you'd hope would have got interest, um, really got very little, and because they instantly went, "Oh no, comedy and crime doesn't mix," and I was like, "Well, you've you've not read it. You know, you're gonna go no, like this hard and fast rule." I mean, I tell this story about when when I first came to to Britain, I went to a BBC thing in London, and a BBC executive got up and told us the the golden rules of sitcom, and one of them was never ever set a sitcom in an office because nobody cares about your office. And then 10 years later, I was at a BBC thing up here in the north of Manchester and a BBC executive in all seriousness stood up and went, never, ever set a sitcom in an office because they get compared to the office. And that's the greatest sitcom ever written. So, right. So that's the new golden rule now, is it? But it just it just shows those rules, how ridiculous they are. Um, so basically I was doing, yeah, I comedic crime books and I was getting them all going, no, no. And uh, myself and the wife went and looked at self-publishing. And like a lot of people were a bit wary. And actually, this is how bad it got. I paid an agent to read my book, um, which, by the way, never do that. Never, ever, ever do that. But I did it because I was an idiot. Uh, and this guy got on the phone to me. Actually, in the seat I was sitting in now, I always remember the phone conversation. I was sitting in my office in my, in my spare room or my, here in my flat. And he rang me up and went, uh, thing is, it's too funny and it's too Irish. And I went, right. And then there was this basic gap in the conversation. And then he went, you have to learn how to take criticism. And I went, oh, sorry, genuinely, I didn't realize that was supposed to be criticism because one of those things has paid my mortgage and the other one, I don't know if you've seen the parades we have, but it turns out we're quite popular. Uh, I mean, frankly, being Irish is a gift from God in the modern age. You get a, lot, a free pass on a lot of things. So, I mean, the idea that genuinely, I got so annoyed by when that, as that as, a, as a piece of feedback that my wife went, right, we'll just do this ourselves. Um, and luckily, my wife, by the way, is I'm... I'm this this will annoy your listeners, and it should do, because it's very unfair. My wife formerly worked in educational publishing, and then she went back to university and did her master's in marketing and public relations. So she now helps out with my books. So basically, I, this isn't why I married her, I hasten to add, but ac- by accident, I happened to manage the per- ma- marriage, the ma- marry, marry the perfect person to, to be married to if you want to start your own self-publishing business. Um, which has helped enormously. An excellent strategy. I commend you on it. Well done on that. So, yeah, <laughs> so when you sat down to to write a first book, having written scripts, having done comedy, having busked stuff as well uh, live on stage, how difficult was it for you to to master? Well, you said you haven't mastered the form, of course, but to 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 tackle the form of writing a novel. I mean, it was tough. I mean, I think especially because on the first one, I didn't really plan ahead. I, I, I had a vague idea where the ending was. Um, but so I, I, I was kind of going into the unknown. Um, I mean, I read a lot. I was, I, you know, I actually read a lot. I was doing the master. So I got some feedback in the sort of writers groups you have there. And I honestly got remember because I was always in my plan. I was going to go back and write this thriller idea that I have. Um that I was actually going to plan. I was going to try and write next year once I finished the trilogy of books that I'm currently working on and all this. And gen- honest truth uh, is it's a thriller set in Manchester. And this is the idea I came up with three years ago. It starts with a bomb going off in Manchester. Um, and then with the tragic things that happened earlier this year, frankly, I lost all interest in doing that. So I might come back to that idea in a different way. But my plan was always that would be the first novel I wrote. And then I started writing this short story it kind of it was called a man at one of those faces. It was based on the idea that somebody who constantly gets confused with the wrong person, in the, you know, in their life. And I had this idea they would go and visit dementia patients in a hospital um, and just pretend to be whoever that person thought they were. And then I came up with that as sort of, well, that's a nice idea, but there's no inciting incident. And then I came up with the idea that one of the patients tries to kill whoever they think he, think he is. And all of a sudden, when you got that, there was loads more questions about well, what happened here, what happened here. And 
I kind of brought in the first couple of chapters. I got some nice feedback from the group. And then I just sort of went, I'm not going to overthink this. I'm just going to start writing. And I just did. And I just kept writing, writing, writing. And just don't, you know, force myself. So whatever happens, even if this turns out to be rubbish, I'm going to keep writing this and finish this novel. Um, and I, I did. I mean, but, it, you know, you do have to work on your, if you come from different skill sets. We all have skill sets coming in. And we all have things we need to work on. Um, and I certainly did. I got a great editor, a guy called Scott Pack, who's brilliant. He does a lot of trad stuff as well. I just got him through um, Reedsy, um, and he was he's, he was excellent. And um, after all the thing about trying to get through trad and fail, the first question uh, Scott sent me an email and asked for my phone number after I'd sent him the book and stuff. And he, he rang me up, and the first thing he said he said, uh, "Hello, how did you not get a publishing deal?" And I went, because nobody read this, <laughs> nobody read the books, Scott. They all just went, oh, it won't work. When he went, oh, because he really likes the books and he's been great. And then he went through and was brilliant. And his particular thing he was great at was um, he was great at telling me when not to be funny. Because I think particularly in my first book with the lack of confidence, I knew I could do funny. So I kept doing funny. Whereas I'm now in particularly one of my final scenes. He went, uh, you see that joke there, that joke there, that joke there. They're all good jokes. You take all of them out because they're undercutting the drama of the scene. Mm. And he was exactly right. Um, and when you have someone like that and you can go, oh, it's brilliant. He made this better. You go, right, he's edited all my other books. He's going to you know, edit all the ones in the future if he, if he still wants to. Um, because as soon as you get someone like that that goes, right, he made this better. Uh, you got to hang on to them. Um, you know, and, and you learn as you go. I mean, in my last book, which was the third one I brought out, we also hired a line editor because I wanted to see if having a line editor as well as a development and a proof could make it better um, and I felt it did I felt there was money well spent so we sort of ended up spending more money I think a lot of people kind of the tendency to go wow well, I know what I'm doing now so I'll get rid of the you know spend less on editing whereas I'm going well the books are going well people seem to like them um, I'm going to spend more on editing on the hope that it'll make me better as a you know so that 10 years down the line I'll be a better writer than I would be otherwise which I think is the, the reasonably good way to go about it I guess. And with that first book then um, having had no interest from trad you had to go or you decided to go uh, indie what was the the launch like the first book launch for you did you have any plan or did you just put it out there and see what happened oh right uh you know that mike tyson quote everybody has a plan then some then i then it punch him in the head that was very much like my first launch um i can remember being incredibly panicked in my first month of the august it was supposed to come out on september the 5th of 2016 um and I didn't, you know, KDP says leave up to five days in CrateSpace. So it ended up coming out on August 30th, which is my birthday, um, because I put it up thinking, oh, you have to leave seven days. And it came up within two hours. So I was like, oh, God, it's out. Um, and, uh, yeah, the first few weeks and months, frankly, didn't go. A few people read it. I got some nice things. My, my wife then sort of went, right, look, I'll, I'll get involved here. And she started putting she started approaching blogs and stuff. Because it wasn't going great in the first couple of months at all, to be honest with you. I mean, it was going okay for a first release. I think none of us realize how hard it is, really. And then some blogs started liking it. And we got some nice reviews that way. And frankly, it only really, the whole thing only really sort of kind of went to a good level when uh, I brought out, it was going pretty well before Christmas. Like, it was going okay. I mean, the people seemed to, said nice things about it. I brought the second book out in February. And then AMS ads, actually, I know people say they're very hard to get. I just got lucky because I had a great quote um, from a review in the Irish Post I managed to get because we hustled to get like reviews and we managed to get one in the Irish Post, which is an Irish newspaper in Britain. And they've been great. Them and the Irish world have been fantastic to me. And I got a great quote from that, which said a brilliant comedic thriller. It worked well on the top of an AMS ad. And then the books kind of took off in America. You can like the, the graph is like sort of March, April all of a sudden the book started selling in America and people started getting into it. And then word of mouth and all, I guess at a certain point, the algorithms, word of mouth, God knows what happens, but they kind of got on a roll um, in America. And then it's, it's lovely now. But yeah, when I first started it, I think, yeah, like everybody, I thought it was going to be a big thing and it was nowhere. And then it took a lot of work to get it up and going because you've just got to get it in front of people. The, the, the voice Scott Pack gave me was, get the book in front of people and good things will happen. And we really, that's all we did. We just kept trying to get the book in front of people, which as we all know, is a lot harder than it sounds. Um, you know, but then it's, I guess at a certain point it just got lucky and it, it took off. And the, I think the great thing that, that I actually in hindsight now think works for us is traditional publishing thinks comedy and crime don't work. Uh, and what that means is 
um, they don't publish books like that. So outside of like someone like Carl Hyacin, who's incredible in the States and stuff, there isn't that many really comedic crime novels around in the modern age. So because mine started doing quite well, there was a rather big gap in the market, really. I mean, there's, there are some great people like Colin Bateman and stuff like, but there's still, for the amount of authors in most other spaces, there really wasn't that many in this space. So I think when people started reading the book and liking it, um, it sort of started getting things moving. And I think the great thing was traditional publishing did me an, almost, an, an enormous favor by having that rule they have that comedy and crime doesn't work. Mm, so you could just fall into the gaps that they leave, I guess, which is great. Yeah, I mean, it, was, it, does, it really does feel like that. I mean, you know, at the time I was annoyed about trad and, and now I'm delighted about that rule. I mean, literally, myself and the wife are going, isn't it so lucky that you didn't get a trad deal? Because it would not have gone as well. Um, I mean, there's, there's no question that being able to, you know, as we all know, being able to adapt, being able to push the book yourself, not having to wait a ridiculous amount of time to put it out. I mean, don't get me wrong. I have friends who have trad deals and it absolutely works for them. And But I think... Like in a year, I was able to build a, a pretty good career as a novelist. And it was just because um, my books, I guess, stood out in a certain way. The covers and all looked different. Because, again, the covers, um, which is always the thing everyone tells you, you know, get a good cover. And I did spend a lot of time and effort getting a good cover, having a competition to get a, the best designer I could. And the fact that we didn't, our book wasn't really the same as anybody else. Because everyone says, do something similar to your genre. But my book wasn't really the same as anything that we could really find outside of maybe Carl Hyacin and early Chris Buckmeyer and stuff. So we just kind of went, well, let's just go with something that kind of says crime, but also looks cool. And people, the, the cover is the other really lucky thing that we had is that people seem to really like the cover of the first book um, because it doesn't look like anything else, which I guess I know what that's, that goes against every piece of advice anyone gives on these podcasts. But that's what we did, and it worked. I think it's it's one of those things, that as long as you know why you're doing it, it makes a lot of sense. And those covers are really strong, and now you've got the, the three um, matching covers up there on your Amazon page. Uh, the branding's really good, too. Where, where did you get them from? Uh, we did a 99 Designs competition, um, which was, was great. We did 99 Designs. It's actually two different designers. Um, and we, yeah, but we did the, the competition uh, through 99 Designs, which I highly recommend um, because you do get a lot. I mean, you have to spend a bit of money um, you know, again, coming in, I was quite unusual in the sense that I was willing to spend money on the cover and I spent money on the editor and stuff like that. Cause I had the great advantage that, you know, I sort of went, Oh, this could be, you know, I might be doing it. I might be an idiot and not know what I'm doing. And my wife sort of went, well, look, your stupid ideas have worked out remarkably well so far. So just spend the money. It's fine. Um, so she's great support that way. So we did. And I think, you know, if you can stand out, if you can do that, but it's one of those things that obviously, you know, you want to make sure the book stands up to the cover. Um, but yeah, 99 Designs was great for me, and I highly recommend it. I think I might even be going back there again for the fourth one. Wow. Um, you haven't got audio books yet? That was the other thing I meant to ask. I can't see them on Amazon. No, no, I haven't got audio books yet, because uh, for a year, uh, everyone said, you do them yourself, and I went, no, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know how to do that. That's ridiculous. I definitely wouldn't do that. And then we started doing auditions and things like that, and frankly, we just... I think the thing was, because I know the rhythm of the books and stuff like that, the auditions we just couldn't really find somebody that really clicked so what i'm now doing is um i am going to try and do the audiobooks i literally earlier today i came back from a training session with a voice coach um a great lady called uh, nicola redmond who's who's basically teaching me how to do the voices because my my books are multiple povs there's a lot of voices in there and um, but they, they are in ireland the dublin trilogy is what they're called so I have to get somebody Irish to do it. Uh, and, you know, I, I haven't got many skills, but being Irish is one of them. Um, so we ended up, yeah, me doing them. Um, the education involved in learning all the different voice things is incredible. But I've now got my own office and I'm going to give it a crack. Uh, so please, God, it'll work. Um, but I thought I'm going to at least try doing them myself. Um, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, and it's I must say it's, it's brilliantly because I love I just like learning new things and sitting down with a voice expert for a couple of hours and them explaining how the voice works. There is way more as a broadcaster. You undoubtedly know this, but I didn't. All the different ways you can deliver a voice, the different sounds and stuff like that. It's, an, it's amazing how much is involved in it. And I must admit, I find it fascinating. So whether I can turn that into actually recording my own books, we'll see. But um, that's that's the current plan. Hopefully probably early next year the first one will be out fingers crossed 
Now, you said that to get that initial impetus with the first book, you used Amazon ads. I'm just interested to know your experience with those because um, I've really just come to them quite late and I've just started with them. And you, you seem to be able to put big budgets on them, but they never seem to fire. No, I mean, it's to be honest, my advice, what worked for me um, doesn't seem to be the thing that worked for everybody else in some ways. But I, I took it very simply is I started literally, I think it was December 31st last year, I started looking at these things. And in hindsight, just a, f- a couple of friends of mine looked at them who were all writers and said, the things that worked for me was the fact that the cover is very strong. Uh, we had that nice quote, pull quote from the Irish Post. And those are, you know, two of the things that really help. And then the blurb, I guess, is okay. And after, um, but beneath the blurb, we do, I know most people say that blog tours and stuff aren't worthwhile. And there's, there's a lot of people don't like them. Um, personally, myself and my wife love bloggers. They've been brilliant for us. They've really helped. But what they gave us was, if you look at the reviews on my first two books, and I'm currently putting them up in the third one, is they gave us a lot of nice quotes that you could say, look, this is somebody. I know people use Amazon review quotes, but I think a blogger maybe looks a little bit more professional, or, you know what I mean, slightly more better social proof to it. So, yeah, I, I just aimed at authors. I thought people who like that author might like my books. And I had a couple and then they started going well. And I can remember showing the figures to the wife and go, oh, look, we got like 25%. Like, we're, we're doing quite well. And we weren't really selling much in America at that point. So the great thing we had was I looked at it and went, well, this is starting from zero. And these things are... So I, I just looked at... Aimed at authors that I liked, that I thought people would like my book if they liked them. That went well. And then I just started expanding from there and finding other authors. I mean, I think now it has definitely got a lot harder because there's a lot more people trying to do it which is, it's kind of like Facebook ads where it works brilliantly and then it gets a bit tougher and then it's really hard. And now on AMS ads, I'm still getting reasonable returns, but um, nothing compared to what it was maybe nine or 10 months ago. But they're still worthwhile. I think it's like with Facebook ads. They're still worthwhile. I'm, spo- I'm, I'm actually starting Facebook ads next week probably. Um, and I think they're still worthwhile as long as you know why and you're aiming at specific audiences. Um, and I, I guess... I'd like to think it comes down to the product that if, if it looks good, people are more inclined to to go for it. But it is, I mean, AMS ads are tough, especially getting into them now. I think you just have to do a lot of, a lot of trial and error um, and just try and make, I think people possibly don't pay enough attention to the blurbs and things like that as well, which I think is a lot of the, if it's not converting, I think the blurb is definitely the thing to look at. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, they were great, but quite hard now, I guess. And I see that you're using uh, vellum to process your books too. How, how did you do that from that day one, or is it something you've discovered as, as you've refined your process? Oh no, I mean, like yourself, I've because I listen to your uh, your weekly updates every Saturday, and like yourself, I love vellum. I'm I'm completely con- ever since the first time I saw it, it's like giggling like a school school child. How brilliant vellum was because my first book, I got formatted um, by you know well formed by a very good company, but because you're always trying to change stuff and everything, there's a lot. of I had to go back several times to get things changed. Um, and then I think the second book, I did the ebook via Vellum. And then when they did print, I was over the moon. I did the last book entirely myself. Um, and like, I'm like you say, and Joanna Penn says, I, I love Vellum. And I would I think it's one of those definite go-to things to have. Because the great thing with that is, as well as my three books that are out, I have a short story collection I gave away as a cookie on the first couple of books. And I have a novella that I give away with the prequel, which is the one that just came out um, just about a month ago. Um, and because I have vellum, I can format them really well. I can, you know, they can look really professional. And they have been brilliant for getting people on the main list and getting people engaged beyond the three books. And having vellum means that I can do that. And it's wonderful that way. So, yeah, it, it is like, like you say, I think it's one of the definite go-to pieces of software. It's fantastic. I love it. Yeah, it's one of those things, just buy it. I don't care how much it costs, just buy it, because it's going to save yeah. you so much trouble, isn't it? It's a wonderful bit of kit, it really is. I mean, if you can afford it at all, it's definitely where to put, put the money, because it will pay for itself. I know like, if you're on a tight budget, it's always hard for people to just hear people saying, I'll oh, just do this. But as I think um, Sean on the, the same publishing podcast always says, is like it's, and even I think Joanna says this as well, is like, you know, for starting a business, you always have setup costs. And having, you know, being a novelist is the exact same thing. And it, but the costs are remarkably low. And one of the few ones is like, get a good cover, get vellum, you know, get a, an editor on some level if, at all, if you can afford it at all. These are just the things you kind of have to do to make sure that the product is as good as it can be. I have a memory like a sieve, but I'm sure you took part in one of my 
Insta freebie giveaways, didn't you, a couple of months ago? I did. I did an Insta freebie a few months ago, um, uh, which is was excellent, by the way. You, I mean, it's uh, you are brilliant. I know you, you. I think I heard on one of your podcasts you were talking about think about making it into a business, and I can see why you would because you were particularly good at it. You did seem to have quite the. You seem to have, have figured it out because Insta freebie is. Um, I think the thing with Insta freebie is it's quite tricky to convert those people into the paying customers. I don't know how you found it, but um, yeah, it, it can be quite tricky, but it's a great way of getting people, at least getting them, getting them in the door and having them looking around the shop. It's a question of how you get them to the, to the, the register is a tricky bit. I'll tell you how I used Insta Freebie. This is my, my evil uh, trick is that I use the giveaways to create a targeted audience in Facebook that I can then retarget in my ads. So I get all those authors sending traffic to a page. I cookie them in Facebook and it builds me a lovely targeted audience I can then retarget. So that that was my kind of evil mastermind strategy. Um, Paul T, you, you devious monster. Well done, my friend. Yeah, but uh, uh, yeah, I agree with you though. The thing is, is that they attract largely freebie seekers uh, and you want buyers. And if you dwell too yeah. long in the world of freebies, you'll never really be able to lift yourself up Above it, I don't think. No, and there, there, I think there is that element. And frankly, there's, there's, I don't know how much if you had it, but uh, there's a little bit of crazy going on in that audience as well. I'm not most, not most of them, but there is the little fringe. I, I got an email just earlier this week from, was it, I think it was just going through. I've set up um, my email thing just to, to get rid of anybody who wasn't clicking, you know, that thing about cleaning the list down, which I was doing. And this lady responded to my, my final bye-bye email, said, uh, I have unsubscribed from all authors who use the F word, or witchcraft was that you and i went through several versions of what i was going to write back to that but then eventually went yes yes it is contemporary crime thriller so it because i have had that uh, you will that's in my books i will say this now there is a bit of swearing there's there's some effing there's some jeffing um because i'm writing a crime book based in dublin and frankly i am writing the way people i grew up with in the areas i know talk and i you know that's I mean, I'm sure some writers can do it without that, and great if you can, but that's the decision I've made. But you will get, you always get a bit of blowback about the profanity. Uh, my favourite one ever was, I got one from uh, another one when I was at home in Ireland. I was, I was sitting talking to my mother, and I read out this email, and this guy said, oh, he's, this guy said he just unsubscribed from my list uh, due to blasphemy. And my mother, honest to God, my mother, the exact sentence she said was, Jesus Christ, what did you say? And I went, literally what you've just said. I just, it's Irish people use the words Jesus Christ, God in conversation, and they don't mean it in any disrespectful way. It's just the way we speak. And my auntie, who was a nun, did it. So I feel quite confident going, that is not a religious. And you do get certain people who feel strongly about it. And if they do, good luck to them. I'm not the books for them. Um, but yeah, you, you do get a little bit of crazy going on there from time to time. Yeah, you want to, and you want to find your readers. This is what you're after. If they don't like it, they need to leave, leave the room. And if they do like it, they'll become. Um, you've heard the phrase, "Your thousand first first thousand fans." Um, yes. and, and that's what you want. You want people who love what you do, everything you do, and don't sit there nitpicking it all the time. Exactly. I think that's a, a very big thing. And I, I, one of the mistakes I made when I was going through things is when I was looking for um, people for my review list. Um, I sent it out to everybody I had, like um, organic subscribers and Insta Freebie subscribers. Um, and I think the Insta Freebie ones were less likely to review. I think they just took the free book, whereas the organic ones were the ones you went out and they were really excited about it and they really pushed it for you. And like again, an Insta Freebie reviewer came back to me and said, because uh, the, the lead detective of my story is called Bunny McGarry. Um, he kind of beca- he was a minor character who basically st- showed up in the first book and literally didn't leave. And he ends up being this character that, that people really seem to connect with. And again, no idea how, but they really do. Like, I've, I've had several women send me emails saying they'd like to marry him. And my wife loves reading these. He went, God, this is the weirdest thing. But yeah, he does really get some female fans, which is really odd. But I, this guy wrote to me and said, because um, this was set in 1999, the, the prequel, which he didn't realize. He thought it was the modern day. And he went, uh, I've just done the date of birth because I gave his date of birth. And went, he's like 50 and you say he's overweight here. Uh, like the women and the gays are not going to go for this. So you're going to have to, my advice is make him younger and fitter. And I was like, well, he's already been in two books and I've actually liked it quite a lot. Um, and, you know, I respect your opinion, but with all due respect to you and your understanding of the women and the gays, and well, I have several gay friends and let me tell you now, they're not worried about being called the gays, but, um, but, um, I think I'll stick. It seems to be working. You know? <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. You, you just have to take it on the chin. I mean, and you're used to this because you've done stand up for goodness sake. You'll be worse. You'll be used to worse than that, won't you? You'll have had violent threats and all sorts. I would think in your. Past, oh yeah, you? I, I've, I've, you've had people throw stuff at you. Yeah, you, occasionally, not as much as, as you'd think. Uh, my favourite one is when someone comes up to you after a gig, which you'll occasionally get. It's usually it's almost always a bloke. He's almost always drunk. And he just seems to, you can see this guy a mile off because he enjoys trying to upset people. You, you can just see them. You know them when you see them coming. And this guy will come up to you and go, I thought you were rubbish. And I'll go, well, I've already been paid. Doesn't really matter now, does it? And then just, because what they want to do is upset, look you upset or get you angry. And if you just go, yep, you have a good point. I didn't have a good one. And walk off. They hate that. They really hate that. Because this, you know. There's a lot of, with, with bad reviews and all that. And I remember you were very honest talking about when you had a bad review. And I we've all had bad reviews. And the great thing people do say, which everyone should do, is go read Stephen King's reviews. There's always somebody who says it's terrible. Um, you know, people think J.K. Rowling can't write. All these people. And what you have to do is go, look, you just get that. It's part of the what happens. So you just sort of, you know, I literally now check them because um, I had a bad review, which actually was a great review. Because I put up a new version of a file, um, which is the downside of being able to control these things yourself. I changed a couple of things in what I thought was the most up-to-date version of a Kindle file. And it turned out it wasn't the most up-to-date version. So I actually put up a version that had more errors than the one I corrected. Um, and this guy wrote a very snooty um, review. And initially I was like, oh, this is terrible. And then I realized what had happened. And it was brilliant because I was able to fix it immediately. And nobody else had a problem because um, everyone else was fine with it. But that... That's the thing. Bad reviews. Just go through them and go, is anyone saying that stuff is spelt wrongly um, or there's any bad formatting? And if there is, then that's something to worry about. If someone goes, ah, I didn't like this. It wasn't funny. You go, well, lots of people did. Fair enough. We all have different opinions on these things. And all you can do is as long as you are happy with the standard of work you're producing and as long as you've done the very best job you can, um, then you just have to roll with these things and look at them. Make sure there's nothing you can learn from. And then if there isn't, just move on. Absolutely. Yeah, well said. So um, still doing the comedy, obviously, and um, yes. writing the books. What's the plan now? Because the books, you've got your traction now. You're on your way, aren't you? It's going really well. So what, what's your plan now? Have you, have you modified the plans? Um, I, I think to a certain degree. I mean, the books, I will I'll honestly say the books are my primary focus now, um, just in the sense that it's day to day. It's the thing I'm always thinking about working on. I'm writing the fourth of them now. Um, so with stand-up, I'm still doing it, but I can have the luxury. I live in Manchester in the Northwest, not far from yourself, so I can pick and choose and do gigs mainly in the Northwest instead of going all around the country, which is lovely. I'm still, I'm still doing, I'm going on, I'm on tour with Gary Delaney over the next few months, and then uh, next year I'm on tour. I'm one of the supports on Sarah Millican's tour, which is fantastic. Um, and again, one of the great things, when I started off, uh, when you are saying about starting off and it wasn't going great, the thing that I had was I was able to, at Sarah's, when I supported Sarah on tour and then Gary on tour, they both said, bring along books and you, you sell books in the interval. Um, so I ended up getting a load of, selling a load of books. So even though, like, you can look at my KDP in the first month, month I can remember that I can remember the no sales today days and you're going, look sitting there at the wife going, nobody bought a book. Literally nobody in 24 hours has bought a book. And um, then I go out with, on tour with Sarah and you could sell a couple of boxes worth because people have just seen you on stage and they're keen to buy a book um, if they think they like it. So that was always brilliant. So I'm still very lucky. I'll, do, I'll be doing that. I'm very much writing the books. Um, TV, I'm not really chasing work anymore, to be honest. I still work for things like Mock the Week and stuff when people like, want me to do it for them, I do it for them. Um, and there's another thing we haven't even mentioned, which is uh, I work for London Irish, the rugby team. I'm the announcer in the stadium. I have oh, wow. been. <laughs> I didn't know that at all. That's great. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been that for about 12 years. I'm officially the second most annoying man in British rugby. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I do that. If you're anyone's a, a rugby fan, I am the voice in the stadium that, that, that shouts, come on, you Irish, incredibly loudly. Um, and, but that's, you know, I've been doing that for 12 years. That's family now. That is literally like you'd have to drag that microphone out of my cold dead hand. So um, I'll still always be doing that. I'll always do stand-up because I am a stand-up. It's like part of my DNA. You, you just become institutionalized. You can't not be a stand-up anymore. Um, but yeah, books are very much... Because it's the most satisfying thing I've ever done is honestly the books. Um, and it's it's been wonderful that way. So I love it. And it is my main focus. But obviously I'm lucky enough that I've got other jobs I do that I enjoy too, which is great. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. 
If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.